I can admit that sometimes I tend to go on just a little too long with these episode intros. I guess I just have a lot to say. For this episode, I am genuinely so excited to just jump into the conversation I had with my guest that I don't want to reveal too much. I'll just say this. Today's episode is all about Katherine Patterson's Jacob Have I Loved. The book was published in 1980 and went on to win the Newbery Medal in 1981. It follows Sarah Louise, a girl born and raised on an isolated island in the Chesapeake Bay, as she tries to deal with the resentment she feels toward her twin sister Caroline, who is clearly favored by their family. Okay, okay, that's all I'm going to tell you about the plot. In our conversation about Jacob Have I Loved, my guests and I talk about sibling rivalries and toxic relationships, consider the challenges of only seeing a story like this from one point of view, take a deep dive into main characters that are less than likable but very relatable, and look at the book from a feminist perspective. We also make lame attempts to connect our feelings about Sarah Louise and the ways in which we relate to her with our very basic understanding of the Enneagram. Okay, now that's really all I want to say about the rest of the episode. I just can't wait for you to hear this discussion. Let me introduce you to my guest before we get started. My guest on episode 87 is Sarah Hildreth, the bookworm behind the Fiction Matters blog. Sarah is a reader, teacher, and lifelong learner. She currently teaches high school English at an all-girls school in Colorado, and there's nothing she loves more than assigning books that students will actually enjoy reading. While Sarah was working on her master's in literature at Georgetown University, she started sharing her reading life publicly on Instagram as a way to connect with book lovers outside of the academic world. Through Bookstagram, she fell in love with recommending books to a larger audience. Sarah owns more books than you could ever hope to read. I saw a whole bunch of them in the background of our recording, so I can confirm it. And if she invites you over for a glass of wine, you'll also undoubtedly be forced to take a book or two home with you. Sarah, you can invite me over for a glass of wine anytime. She lives in Denver, Colorado with her husband and their dog, Mr. Bingley. Follow Sarah on Instagram at Fiction Matters and be sure to check out her blog at fictionmatters.com. Along with one of my other favorite bookstagrammers, Chelsea, of Chelsea Reads and episode 34 of SSR, Sarah just recently launched a new podcast called Novel Pairings. On each episode, Sarah and Chelsea discuss one classic book and recommend more contemporary reads that feature similar themes. If you love SSR, you should definitely check it out. If you love SSR, you should also definitely check us out on social media. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. Tagging screenshots of episodes you're especially enjoying on Instagram stories is a fantastic way to help me spread the word about the show. I love to give Insta shoutouts to people who are sharing about the podcast. You can also help me spread the word about the show by leaving a five-star rating or review on iTunes. Trust me when I tell you that there really is a good reason that I ask you to do this on every single episode. I am just trying to bring more book lovers into the SSR family, and the more ratings and reviews we have, the more possible that is. We are so close to 200 ratings and reviews that I can practically taste it, so please go ahead and leave one if you're a fan. I promise that it only takes a few seconds. Don't forget to check out SSR merch too. Visit www.ssrpodcast.com slash shop for stickers, bookmarks, tote bags, and t-shirts. If you really want to support the podcast, I'd love for you to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor. Shout out to all of the patrons tuning into this episode. Patreon sponsors contribute a few dollars every month to help with the production of this independent pod, and they get some very cool exclusive rewards in return. Patreon sponsors contribute a few dollars every month to help with the production of this independent pod, and they get some very cool exclusive rewards in return. You can join the Patreon community for as little as a dollar per month, though there are different rewards at every tier. Learn more at www.patreon.com slash SSR podcast 
or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. It would not be an exaggeration to say that the show would not be possible without the love and support of its Patreon sponsors. It also wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that Libra FM is totally changing the game for audiobooks. For one thing, it's made me an audiobook fan, and I think I'm going to win you over too, especially since I have a discount code. Libra FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libra FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month with code SSRPOD. Now that I'm an audiobook listener, I'd love your recommendations. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. I am so excited to be here. You are sitting in front of like the most beautiful wall of books, which I have seen on your Instagram feed. And now <laughs> I kind of feel like I'm seeing it in real life through Skype. Um, but it's really like the perfect backdrop for this conversation. Yeah, it's like we're just hanging out in the library chatting about books. I know. You have a cup of tea. I should have made one. I feel like we <laughs> should be somewhere drinking tea together and talking about books. But this is about as close as we're going to get. We are talking about Katherine Patterson's Jacob Have I loved. It was published in 1980 for a little context at the top of the conversation. Tell me a little bit about why you chose this book and if you have any memories of reading it when you were a kid. So I definitely have memories of reading it when I was a kid. It'll be fun to talk about what I did and did not remember about this book, but mostly what I remember is my grandmother gave me this book because the main character's name is Sarah Louise and my name is Sarah Louise. Oh. Yes. So I felt a very strong connection with the protagonist of this book when I was younger because of our names. And since I've been listening to your show, this book has come up in my mind a lot because I've been thinking so much as I've listened to SSR over the years about the books I read as a kid that have influenced the reader I am today. And this is always the one that jumps out to me as being most similar to the books that I read as an adult. That's so interesting because I think I suggested this one to you as one of like the four options that I sometimes send along. So that's funny that it's a book that you've thought about without, I didn't even know. I had no clue. I know. Yeah, it was perfect. We were all synced up. So as I told you, when you first picked it, I couldn't remember if I had read the book because I remember the title of it. Like, I feel like it was a book that you should have read if you were a kid in the 90s and a big reader. Like, it was a book that was out there a lot. It seems like a book that maybe would have been required reading. I don't know. It just, I was like, I think I know this book or I read it or something. Katherine Patterson is the author of Bridge to Terabithia, which we read for the podcast. um, And I can link that episode in the show notes. But I did read that book and loved it when I was a kid. So I thought there was a good chance I read Jacob Have I Loved, but I figured I would like 
know for sure once I started reading it. Certainly did not read it when I was a kid. (laughs) And I know this for sure because, and this is not a joke, about two-thirds of the way through the book, there is a note in the margins of my copy that says, but where is Jacob? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, spoiler alert, listeners. There's not a character in this book named Jacob, but I was looking for him actively. And uh, even as a 29-year-old reader who I I feel like for the most part, like I understand that there are often nuances in books and like I'm a pretty well-read person. I know that sometimes titles are sometimes not like completely, I don't know, direct out of the plot, but I I was like, oh, there's definitely a character named Jacob here. And I was waiting for him and I was like, wow, Jacob must make a huge impact if he's only in this book for the last third. I can't wait to see what he does. I kept waiting for him to show up. Um, and yeah, he never did. So I'm fully convinced that I never read this book as a kid. That's amazing. I mean, the title, when it does finally come up, really packs a punch. But she really keeps that close to the vest for the majority of the book. Yeah, I was like, I'm not sure when we're going to meet him, but I can't wait. Um, (laughs) The other thing that I found as I was reading this book, and I think it's a testament to what an amazing writer Catherine Patterson is, um, is that I kept like sort of latching onto different threads of the story and being like, oh, this is what the book is about. Like, you know, first you have Sarah Louise hanging out with her friend Paul and living their island life in the Chesapeake Bay and crabbing and doing all of these things and having all these adventures. And I was like, oh, this is what the book's going to be about. And then we meet her twin sister, Caroline, and find out that there are some really complicated family dynamics. And I was like, oh, no, this is what the book is going to be about. And then this mysterious captain returns from being away forever. And I was like, oh, here we are in the book. And it was just so fascinating to me that there were so many different threads that I kept picking up on. And again, even as somebody who can, I consider myself to be like a good reader who, who reads a lot of complicated stories but for some reason this one a book written for middle graders really it really impressed me with just the level of I I don't know like the intricacy with which Katherine Patterson put all of these different storylines together Absolutely. It's so different from so many other middle grade reads because it doesn't have that traditional plot arc. It's much more of almost a character study of Sarah Louise and these almost disparate moments in her life that make her who she is at the end. Yeah, I think that's a great way to describe it. And I found a few quotes about Katherine Patterson as an author while I was getting ready to chat with you today. These are from a piece in Entertainment Weekly from 1992, which is interesting. I didn't know that they had archives from the early 90s online for EW, but they do. Um, And this seems to have been a piece that was like more generally about the author who was a two-time Newbery winner. One of one of the books that won the Newbery for her was Jacob Have I Loved, and then of course Bridge to Terabithia. Um, but I will share these two quotes, which I think describe the skill with which Katherine Patterson approached this book. Her novels are emotional journeys in which young people struggle against tough odds towards greater strength of character. In Jacob Have I Loved, another Newbery winner, an adolescent girl almost ruins her life through gnawing jealousy of a prettier, more gifted, more favored twin sister. In one of her most subtle portraits, Patterson delicately reveals how Louise's resentment distorts her view of her own worth and her basically loving family's treatment of her. Louise's vision is so persuasive that the reader, too, must overcome the demon envy before being able to savor Louise's muted triumph at the end. And the second one that I'll share is, unlike many of her fluffier contemporaries, Patterson offers no cheap sentiment or glib solutions. She's brilliant at evoking both the idealism and the ignorant prejudices of childhood, the romantic stirrings of adolescence, and the oblique offhand ways kids express their deepest feelings. Her characters warm us with their humor and courage. Her plots, plunging vigorously through the thickets of adversity, are, in the end, bracingly hopeful. Oh, I love both of those. I think they're so spot on because especially revisiting this as an 
adult, I can see how unlikable of a narrator Sarah Louise is, even as we empathize with her and root for her to overcome the resentment that the author was talking about there. She isn't the fluffy, lovable, plucky heroine that we're so used to reading in middle grade. Make sure that I include an image of the original cover art for this book, which I don't have on the on the copy that um, I ordered. This is the one that I have is more of like a watercolor kind of direction. But the original cover has these almost like caricature-esque drawings of the two tw- of the twins. Um, and Caroline, of course, is portrayed as this like beautiful blonde, like flowing hair and blue yes. eyes. And then in the foreground, you have Sarah Louise, who she could not look more opposite her sister. Clearly, they're fraternal twins. Um, <laughs> but she looks angry and upset and sad, and, and they just have nothing in common physically. And I found a few blog posts this morning that were like, I hated everything about the blonde girl in that cover. So I think <laughs> like that was a really interesting cover direction for that original edition, because I think it, it sets readers up immediately to be like, oh, there's something that I don't trust about this blonde, who is maybe the, the heroine of other books that I've read, but I think I'm supposed to like the brunette. Yes, Absolutely. I remember hating Caroline as a kid. And one of the images that really visibly stuck in my mind all of these years was when Caroline is getting off the ferry and she has her scarf tied over her beautiful blonde ringlets and just the perfect ringlet is escaping and blowing in the wind. And Sarah Louise describes her as looking like a girl from a cigarette ad. Yes. And she's so easy to despise through the narration. And then as an adult reading this about a 13-year-old girl, I'm thinking, okay, I really should not be hating this child. And how can I reframe my expectations of what this book is really supposed to be. Yeah, I think that's a great line. And I love that you remembered that scene from your time reading it as a kid. What I remember most about that moment from reading it more recently is that Caroline wasn't carrying anything. And the whole reason that Sarah Louise had been asked to go down to meet the boat was because her dad thought maybe her mom would have bags to carry. And I think that what's so interesting about the dynamic between Sarah Louise and Caroline and and maybe what makes this book so compelling and interesting for readers is that like there are aspects of their sibling rivalry that are very normal and very relatable and I don't think any sibling relationship is perfect and I think anybody who has a sibling has had that experience of being the only one to like go out and meet your mom or dad at the car to carry in groceries while your sibling watches tv or sleeps in I have been in that position. Shout out to my sisters if you're listening. They've probably done the same (laughs) for me. And it's annoying when that happens. And so I think most people can relate to that kind of sibling resentment at that sort of a level. Obviously, what we have going on between Sarah Louise and Caroline goes much deeper. Yes, absolutely. I'm an only child, so I do not have that experience. I am, I guess, both the Sarah Louise and the Caroline in my family. Oh, that's a very interesting perspective. (laughs) Yeah. So I also wondered that when I picked this book back up, like what about this character was so real and relatable to me as an only child who didn't have that person to resent and be jealous of. My situation growing up is kind of interesting, and maybe I've shared this on the podcast before, maybe not. So sort of half of my time, or more than half of my time, because I spent a lot of a lot of my time growing up with my mom, I was an only child for many years because I didn't have any siblings on my mom's side. And then at my dad's house, I have three sisters who were much younger than me. So I kind of lived in these two worlds when I was growing up. And then um, I now have step-siblings on my mom's side who I don't really call any of my siblings half or step. They're all my siblings. So 
So I have this interesting experience of like sometimes feeling like I was an only child and sometimes feeling like I was one of a big family. Do you feel like as an only child, you sought out stories about siblings or or not? Because sometimes I think that like particularly before my sisters were born and even when they were so young that I felt like I was disconnected from them, I was really interested in stories about twins because that was very attractive to me. And I think that is a huge part of the reason that like Mary-Kate and Ashley were so successful and the parent trap, which we just covered on the podcast, like in the moments that I felt the most like an only child, I was fascinated by twins. Do you think that that was part of what interested you about this book? 100%. I think that is so, I mean, I think maybe we can grew up in a moment where twins were big. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think that being an only child and any moments of loneliness, that imagined ideal of having a twin, like the perfect playmate and the perfect person to tell all of your secrets to was very fascinating to me. And definitely, I think is one of the reasons why this book attracted me to it, because it gives a very different take on that. I think maybe it stood out more than some of those other stories. Yeah, because every other twin story has some element of like twins are always best friends and twins can read each other's minds and even if they argue over clothes they're still going to be each other's besties at the end of the day and this book is not that and so I can almost see how if you were somebody who had moments that you wished you weren't an only child this book would be like oh you know what it's cool that you don't have siblings because sometimes having siblings is really upsetting and difficult yeah absolutely something that we talked about during the parent trap episode is this idea of the binary descriptions that authors sometimes assign to twins. In The Parent Trap, of course, it's very much like this is the wild twin and this is the chill, relaxed twin. Um, And I think that that's prevalent across pop culture stories that have to do with twins. How do you feel that played out in this book? Because, you know, we do have a situation where like Caroline is good at everything that Sarah Louise isn't and Sarah Louise perceives Caroline to be just like this perfect angel. Did you feel like it felt too binary or did you sense that there's a little bit more nuance here? I thought there was a little more nuance because I think that they're more similar than Sarah Louise wants us to see. And it's true that physically they're very different. Their gifts are very different. Their interests are very different. But the way they both have this desire to feel special and loved and the way that desire can kind of come out in a little bit of cruelty and pettiness is so similar to the two twins. But one of the things that I definitely thought as a kid would happen and even rereading it, I couldn't remember if this does happen. I thought they were going to overcome their perceived differences And in the end, if not be best friends, at least appreciate each other. And that does not happen, which is fascinating because in really any book, but especially in a middle grade book, I expect that kind of satisfying resolution, like they've overcome something together. And that certainly does not happen here. Yeah. And it's interesting because the I keep, I feel like I keep saying, and it's interesting, but this book is interesting. So I apologize for being redundant, but there's a lot of interesting things to say. Totally. It is interesting that <laughs> this book in some ways has a really happy ending because Sarah Louise finds some peace within herself and obviously is able to set herself up for success separate from all of the the things that were weighing her down in her childhood and like she kind of comes to peace with a lot of the stuff that um, upset her for all of these years that we've been getting to know her over the course of the book but 
the happy ending doesn't necessarily extend to her relationships. She and her twin are living completely different lives. We don't really get a sense that they're in touch at all. Sarah Louise is building this family, and I don't think I remember there being any mention of the fact that, like, oh, when I, like, wrote Caroline a letter when my baby was born, and you don't even get a hint of the fact that they might be coming to terms with each other and like making peace with their differences. So I think that's a very good point. Yeah, it's it's really, it is interesting <laughs> that she would choose to end the novel that way because I think a lot of young adult fiction is kind of moralistic, which is sometimes off-putting for me as a reader. Like she's not trying to suggest that Sarah Louise needs to get over everything and to return to being close to her sister or needs to develop that relationship because it's the right thing to do. She's just depicting a very honest relationship which I love, but was still surprised as an adult to get to the end and and think, huh, that didn't really happen the way I, I thought it was going to. Yeah, and I feel like now in 2020, you hear a lot more from people who are like, very attuned with relationships in their lives and in their families that may be toxic. And I do think that it's become a little bit more widely accepted, or at least it's a thing that people are more open about when they've made the decision to separate themselves from a toxic family member. And in that way, I think this book was really ahead of its time because I don't ever remember being raised with this idea that it might be acceptable to like identify somebody in your family, especially your sibling, your twin, as toxic and to be like, you know what, I'm going to remove myself from that situation. Like that was not something that I was aware of growing up. And I don't think it's something that most families or teachers promote as something that would be healthy for your mental or emotional health. And this book kind of leads you to believe that it's maybe the right choice sometimes, which is a very like progressive idea. Absolutely. I do still wonder though, I mean, I'd love to hear this story through Caroline's perspective because I can't really get a read on who she actually is as a character. There are certainly moments where she's being a total brat, and I completely side with Sarah Louise. One example would be when um, she's making fun of the other... So Caroline's a beautiful singer. Yes. And after their Christmas concert, Caroline comes home and she does this imitation of another soloist at the Christmas concert who doesn't have as perfect a voice as Caroline. And it's so mean. And her parents just kind of smile and, and let it happen and let her behave that way. I think another example is the one you were saying about Caroline not carrying anything from the fairy. I think that's another thing that really resonates with young readers is I think young people have a very acute sense of fairness. And it's very obvious that the sibling relationship here is not fair. And so I, I think that through Sarah Louise's perspective, Caroline does come across as a brat and somebody we're not supposed to like. But then there are moments where I think that Sarah Louise is interpreting things the wrong way. Like Caroline might actually be asking how she is or trying to care for her sister. And Louise interprets it as her being a goody-goody or something like that. Well, I think that anything that Caroline does, Sarah Louise is going to just continue to put her in this box of this identity that she, that she's created for her. And we've all done that. I am certainly guilty of it. I am not the most forgiving person. I'm really good at holding a grudge. There's a fun fact about me, listeners. <laughs> um, and when I find myself in that situation, I really do tend to just like 
keep a mental list of anything that this person does or says that sort of supports my theory about who they are. Um, that doesn't make me sound like a very nice person, but I'm only human and I think it's it's human nature to do that. And Sarah Louise does that. She's not really willing to see the nuance in Caroline's behavior because she's angry. And to give listeners a little context, because the hurts in their relationship go so deep. I mean, it's literally 13 years, a full life's worth of frustration when we meet these girls. Sarah Louise is the older of the two twins. Caroline was born a few minutes after she was. And when Sarah Louise was born, she was healthy and fine and strong. And when Caroline was born, she had a lot of health issues and the parents were concerned right off the bat that she might not live. And so the narrative within their family is that like, oh, Sarah Louise was fine from the beginning. Like she was just in a basket somewhere while we were taking care of Caroline and making sure that she was going to live. Um, And then throughout their young childhood, their mom was always taking Caroline to the mainland because, of course, they're very isolated on this island. That was upsetting to Sarah Louise because she was always left at home. And again, the idea is like, oh, she was always fine. You know, she didn't need our help. And she's sad and frustrated because worry does sometimes feel like care and that you matter to people. She says, but I had never caused my parents a minute's worry. Didn't they know that worry proves you care? Didn't they realize that I needed their worry to assure myself that I was worth something? And I think anybody who's from a big family or maybe even not a big family, anybody who has a sibling can probably relate to this to an extent because needs in a family are never all at an equal level. One person is always going to need more. And I think that like whoever happens to need less within a given family at a certain time maybe feels like great that I'm, I'm not sick or in need or something, but also like I kind of would like a little bit of attention and Sarah Louise is feeling that way, but doesn't know how to express it. And so all of these things happen over the course of their first 13 years of life that just continue to make her feel less than and smaller than Caroline. As you mentioned, Caroline has this beautiful singing voice. And so she actually gets a scholarship to go take singing lessons on the mainland getting access to resources that they never would have had available to them on the island. And although the lessons are paid for, the transportation to and from are not part of the deal. And there are all these other expenses that come along with it. And so in order to help the family afford all of these things, because they don't have a lot of money, Sarah Louise actually steps up and goes out on boats and like catches crabs and does whatever all of these men are doing. And so she <laughs> like was never officially asked to do it. And her mom never is like, okay, give me the money. But Sarah Louise sort of sensed that her family needed the resources and so she took it upon herself to do it so she is kind of like creating this responsibility for herself and she's like very responsive to what everybody needs but it's obviously like not helping her case against her sister or like making her feel any better about things Absolutely. And sometimes I think she can come across as playing the martyr a little bit. But what I really feel like Sarah Louise is doing is she's trying to make herself indispensable to her family when she feels like she's just the extra sister. She feels like she's not worried over. She doesn't matter as much. She's not loved as much. And so she tries to make herself needed by helping support them or doing extra work around the house or being particularly kind to their grandmother, who is another whole interesting (laughs) element of this book. Yes. I think it's so well plotted that Catherine Patterson shares Caroline and Sarah Louise's birth story so early in the novel, because that is heart-wrenching to hear about Sarah Louise being born, being perfectly healthy. And then when 
the family tells the birth story, it's all about Caroline and how she wasn't breathing and how worried they were. And Sarah Louise, as a kid, is asking, and where was I? And she says that she sees in her mom's eyes that her mom doesn't remember where she was when they were worrying over Caroline. And and how her mom travels on the ferry to the mainland when Caroline is in the hospital as an infant to breastfeed her. And Sarah Louise stays at home and eats formula. And it's just this lack of fairness at the very beginning that is really, it becomes really easy to side with Sarah Louise, even as throughout the novel, we see that maybe she really is choosing to buy into this narrative that is not serving her. Yeah, I have so many things to say in response to all of this. Oh, I'm like <laughs> overflowing with thoughts. So the first is that I really relate to Sarah Louise in some ways because and I'm not as well versed in the Enneagram as I should be and I'm trying to learn more, but I'm not I'm not going to express this thoughtfully. Whatever my Enneagram number is, I forget if I'm a 2 or a 3, like a 2 wing 3 or a 3 wing 2. What I've learned about myself by reading the little that I've read about the Enneagram is that I too have a tendency to like just want to make myself indispensable to people and as I get older and kind of like explore some of my relationships and try to like I don't know, understand myself better. I realize that that has not always done me a lot of favors. And so I really latched on to a lot of Sarah Louise's thoughts throughout the story of like, but you don't have to do that. Like you don't have to do that. But at the same time, like I would totally do that. (laughs) And I would totally do it and not complain and feel like it was the right thing to do. But then I would also be a little bit upset, but then I'd be mad at myself for being upset. And so I really identified with all of those feelings. And I think that made the ending a little bit harder for me to process, which we'll talk Mm. about. But like, I don't know, in some ways, I feel like the author was trying to show the reader that like Sarah Louise was the one getting in her own way of happiness. And I agree with that to an extent, but when you're in it and when you are the way that Sarah Louise and I are, it it feels like other people are telling you that that's the right thing to do. And so then it's like, how am I getting in my own way? This is the right thing to do. Like, I don't see how this is my fault. So that's my first thought. And I want to talk more about the ending. My other thought is that I think it would have been so easy for Catherine Patterson to create this situation where like Caroline was team mom and Sarah Louise's team dad. Um, And I think you see that in a lot of books. In some ways, Sarah Louise is clearly like the quote-unquote tomboy of the family. She is a little bit more rough and tumble, partially out of necessity because like she has to be out catching crabs in order to provide for the family. And like she has a best friend who's a boy and like she seems to have a few more moments with the dad, but like she's not the typical daddy's girl. Like she and her dad don't have these intense talks. And like while she's out doing what may have been perceived at the time as more like masculine activities, it's not necessarily because she's spending time with her dad and her sister Caroline, while she's home a lot of the time, like she too seems to have a really close relationship with their dad. And Sarah Louise actually, like when we meet her, seems to have this pull to be a little bit more feminine. I mean, we have to remember this book takes place in the 40s. And so I say that, and and I want to acknowledge that obviously at that time, there was a very clear delineation between like what was masculine and what was feminine and there were expectations for what a girl was supposed to be like and what a boy was supposed to be like and I think that although Sarah Louise finds herself doing a lot of like boy activities and being outside she's pretty clear about the fact that like she knows she has this romantic spirit and so I think if we think about the way books often are like 
I don't know, a little bit more clear cut, that kind of kid would traditionally be like hanging out with their mom, but she doesn't really get to spend that much time with her mom because her mom is always with Caroline, but yet she's not really spending a lot of time with her dad. So I thought that Catherine Patterson did a really good job of like complicating the family enough that the members weren't falling into these clear categories in a way that I really liked. And it also created this sense of longing, I think, for both sisters that like Sarah Louise would have loved to be closer with both of her parents. It's not like her dad loved her more or vice versa. I think Caroline, while it seems as though she is more loved by both parents, she probably wishes that her relationships with both of them were different. The grandmother throws everything into like a whole other state of chaos. (laughs) So I liked that a lot. Yeah, I liked that a lot about the family dynamic. I completely agree. To to your point about the family dynamic, I had completely misremembered that component of the book and that component of Sarah Louise's character. I I remembered her as this tomboy because she does a lot of, you know, quote unquote tomboy things. But you're so right. The book starts with her describing herself as a romantic and how she's constantly imagining herself in these crazy romantic situations. And she loves to read and imagine herself in these stories. And I love that complication of that binary that Patterson creates. And to your point about the Enneagram, that's so funny that you are relating to her through the Enneagram because I'm also new to the Enneagram. So... I'm trying to learn. I know it's cool and trendy, and I do feel like it could teach me a lot about myself. So maybe we can make a pact to figure that out together. (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. Let's do an Enneagram book club. Love it. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I'm a four. Okay. And I totally thought Sarah Louise was a four um, as I was reading because one of the main attributes of a four is this desire to, to be your authentic self and be seen for your authentic self and also to feel special. And there's a a quote where Sarah Louise is reading The Last of the Mohicans and she's she's talking about how she wants to feel special like the main character in The Last of the Mohicans and she says, "Oh to have a bright blue tortoise, something that proclaimed my uniqueness to the world." And just that desire to be seen as unique and a standout person. I really related to and as you said, when you were talking about your own Enneagram, she has trouble voicing those desires. And she has she wants to be seen for her authentic self without telling anybody who that authentic self is. She just wants them to know and love her for who she is. And I found that to be extremely relatable. I mean, I think that's one of my favorite types of books to come back to that angle of why I think this book lasted in my memory is I love books that have characters who are simultaneously unlikable and relatable because I think they really make me feel vulnerable and teach me something about myself and my own relationships. And even as an adult, I found that to be true with this one. Yeah, I feel like I learned a lot from this book. And to your point about your Enneagram number, Maybe she's like a four wing three or a three wing four. And maybe I'm talking about a three and not a two. And as I said, I'm not really sure which one I was referring to. So maybe she's like on the three, four boundary somewhere. And Enneagram fans and experts, please do not add us. We are learning. We're doing our best. We're trying. We're trying very hard. And I, I would like to learn more about the Enneagram. If for no other reason, then I think it does add an interesting aspect to conversations about characters like this. So in some ways, her interest in like wanting to be 
an individual and to be seen for who she authentically is kind of gets hidden a little bit for a chunk of the book there. Like I somehow think that the part that I related to about her character, the sense of responsibility and wanting to be indispensable becomes a more pronounced part of her personality for a big chunk of the book. While the part of her personality that you related to more and wanting to be an individual, that kind of has to like shrink a bit in proportion to the other personality attribute. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but basically what happens is that like as Caroline is given more and more and like gets to be more her authentic self, she gets to leave the island. She gets to go to fancy boarding school and like have all of her dreams come true. And out of necessity, Sarah Louise has to like continue to take on more responsibility. And she just kind of like gives up on school and a lot of the other things that maybe could have helped her get her authentic self and so I don't know maybe her like threeness comes out more and her fourness has to shrink yeah absolutely she feels really compelled to sacrifice herself and her time and her interests for her her family and her sister and I think one of the most heartbreaking moments in the book is when the captain chooses to use his money to send Caroline to boarding school so she can continue with her music. And I'm sure we'll come back to the captain stuff later. Whole other thing. (laughs) Whole other thing. (laughs) But her mom offers to send Sarah Louise to a much less fancy, less expensive boarding school. But it was something that Sarah Louise had said throughout the novel she really wanted to do was to go to this school. And when her mom offered, she just spat it back in her mom's face and was like, why are you trying to get rid of me? Why don't you love me? Why don't you want me around? And oh my gosh, that that part was, again, I thought very relatable um, because she twisted things in a way that continued to fit the narrative she had of her life and therefore sacrificed something she really wanted, which was sad, but I think something that's very human. Well, because it still wasn't as good as what Caroline got. Exactly, exactly. So what's the point? Right. It's just not fair. It's just not fair. So she's just going to stay behind. And I think we see her kind of lose her fire over the course of the book. Um, And luckily, she regained some of it at the end, which is great. But she, like, blends into life on the island. um, And she's happy. And and I, I liked that, too, because, again, like, I think that this is what happens in real life. People make decisions. Sometimes they self-sabotage or they make sacrifices or they decide to prioritize family responsibility over, like, their own individuality and they, like, assume sort of a boring rhythm. And more often than not, like, they're content. I mean, often they're not happy. They're not, like, bubbling over with excitement about life. But I liked that Sarah Louise wasn't in this state of depression. Like, she figured out how to make it work. I mean, I was sad for her because, obviously, like, I wanted more for her during that period of her life. But I thought that this was really relatable. Like, sometimes you just find a rhythm, and it's not necessarily, like, pure joy. But you make a decision, and you live with the consequences. And I think Sarah Louise does that. I agree. And I I love the message that it's not fair and not everybody is granted all of these talents and gets to go on a full ride to Juilliard and have this magical special life, but we can still be content and happy in the daily rhythms of the life we choose to create. Yeah, I pulled out one excerpt from the book, and this is sort of as she's coming to terms with the fact that, like, maybe she's not going to go off the island and, like, do all the exciting things that she had dreamed of doing when she was younger. She says, I could crab like a man if I chose. Crazy people who are judged to be harmless are allowed an enormous amount of freedom ordinary people are denied. (laughs) 
Thus, as long as I left everyone alone, I could do as I pleased. Thinking about myself as a crazy, independent old woman made me feel almost happy, which I thought had a lot of sense of humor in it. And there is a lot of like moments of humor sprinkled throughout this book. Um, There's a lot of that. And I liked that generally. I mean, we needed it sometimes. Yes, absolutely. Um, But I thought that that quote was interesting too, because like she's seeing her future in two different ways. And like, I don't know, we all make choices. We all can find ourselves in multiple realities. And I think that Sarah Louise is aware enough of like what's at stake in these different scenarios to be like, you know what, like if my best case scenario, if I don't leave the island is that I can just kind of like do what I want and be an independent spirit, then like maybe that won't be so bad. Yeah, I I love that even in her worst case scenario, she still classifies herself as very special. She's not just going to be the normal, typical woman on the island. She's going to be the independent, crazy one that people talk about but leave alone. Yeah, which is like (laughs) kind of great. Like, you could do worse than to be that way. (laughs) Yeah, she's going to be the Boo Radley of the island, which is great. Yeah, living in New York City, like, I've seen those women around. Like, they they walk the streets, (laughs) they ride the subways, they live everywhere, but I've seen quite a bit of them in New York. So um, I was thinking about those women while I was reading this book. So it's hard to talk about how Sarah Louise ultimately learns like the lesson of this book because as I said I feel like I have a complicated relationship with it or or with the way that we might be supposed to interpret it so as we've mentioned Caroline leaves the island she goes to boarding school she's then offered a full ride to Juilliard finally Sarah Louise is like free of the pressure to support her financially which is awesome and I'm like thrilled for her about that And then something even more upsetting happens because Call, who was Sarah Louise's like best friend, and when we meet him at the beginning of the book, he's like this overweight, nearsighted boy who like nobody wants to be friends with. He has never had a relationship with his father, so he like doesn't have anyone teaching him how to quote unquote be a man, and we could talk in depth about what that means. But the idea here is that like he just is pushed away by like any other boy or man that he meets on the island. He doesn't have attention from anyone. The girls don't want to hang out with him. Sarah Louise is literally the only person who will spend time with him. And his only option is to join the Navy, as I'm sure it was true of many kids at this time in the 1940s. And so he goes off, he goes to war, and he comes back. And during that time, Sarah Louise is like, oh, like maybe I loved him all along. Like it's sort of the implication, like (laughs) maybe we could just get married. And so she's all excited. She has been like out crabbing all day. And she's like, I'm just going to put on like some perfume and maybe I won't smell like crab anymore, which is so sweet. And of course he comes, yeah, my Sunday dress that I haven't worn in three years and now it's too tight. And of course he comes back and he has become engaged to Caroline, which is so heartbreaking. Call was the only thing that really was Sarah Louise's. And of course, Caroline had infringed on that friendship years earlier. So Sarah Louise is like continuing to see Caroline from her perspective, like take everything that could have been hers. And she's really frustrated and she has a conversation with her mom circling back to what you mentioned before about how like really her parents had offered to send Sarah Louise to school and she hadn't been interested and their mom is like I mean you could have gone but you chose not to is like the thrust of the conversation and that I think is like really what we're supposed to take from the book in some ways that like sometimes we are our worst enemies like we can build our own prisons like we can create our own limits and 
as I alluded to before, like, I'm just not sure how I feel about that because I think that there's like some nurture going on here where I think that Sarah Louise was like always nurtured to like feel less than and there's only so much that she could overcome in that situation. Like if you're made to feel that way from the time you're a baby, literally a baby, I'm not sure how simple it is to just be like, oh, you know what? Like I'm going to not limit myself. Obviously she she could have pushed herself a little I don't know I don't I don't I just think it's less straightforward than maybe Katherine Patterson wants it to be yeah I I completely agree I I think that it is wrong to think that her parents and community and Caroline are blameless here and that it's all in Sarah Louise's mind it's it's clearly not it's it's clearly real hurt from real pain that was inflicted on her by her her family I think that it could be empowering to read it as that she can overcome these these things on her own even if she wasn't the one who initially caused them. I wish that she had gotten the opportunity to have more conversations with her family about the real things that had happened in the family that hurt her because there was no no one else took any sort of responsibility for the way Sarah Louise grew up and the way she perceived her life and her role in the family. I do think for me that differs a little bit from the situation with Call because even though that it was heartbreaking when he came back and was engaged to Caroline and I'm still mad about it as an adult. Sarah Louise was mean to him. I mean, she... True. They were... She was the only person who befriended him. She took him for granted. You're... Yeah. She took him for granted. And she had this kind of running commentary about how he had no sense of humor. And she thought about his weight a lot and how he was fat and unattractive and it was kind of mean it was like she just expected him like you said he she took him for granted she expected him to be hers I mean and he even acknowledges that when he tells her that he is engaged to Caroline they have this conversation and call says I guess it's hard for you to think someone like Caroline might favor me he gave a short laugh you never did think I was much to brag about now did you and I mean he's completely misinterpreting the situation that's not why Sarah Louise is upset at all but he is right that she didn't see him for all of those years the way he wanted to be seen I think that's totally fair. And as we're talking about it, I'm also thinking that in some ways, like, Call shows sort of the path that maybe Sarah Louise could have modeled a little bit because, like, Caroline is a character that, of course, has been given all the resources and all the access that she could have wanted on this very small island where, like, they don't have much. Call had nothing. I mean, Call really did not have a lot of choices. He didn't have any guidance. He has even less love from his family than Sarah Louise has or feels that she has. Um, And he still found a way to make his way in the world. And I will say that, like, there's some historical context to this and that, of course, World War II and joining the military was his primary option. And I also recognize the fact that even today, for a lot of kids that don't have a lot of choices, joining the military is really their only way out of whatever their situation is. And so I don't want to overlook that. But at this time in history, the GI Bill was a big thing. And so Call was Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to go to war and I'm going to come back. And not only was he engaged to Caroline, but he was going to go to college. So I think there's also an argument to be made that maybe Sarah Louise could have found her way somewhere like between their two paths where like Call really just pulled himself out of nothing and figured it out. Whereas Caroline 
Sarah Louise Fields has had everything handed to her. And so maybe yes. there's somewhere in between where Sarah Louise could have found her way. Yeah. And I, I think, of course, sex comes into that. I mean, she as a woman or as a girl didn't have the same choices that Call did. And I'm glad that Catherine Patterson brings that up later in the book when Sarah Louise decides that she really wants to become a doctor and she meets with her. She's doing great in her courses. She's at University of Maryland, I believe. Yeah. And her advisor calls her in to talk to her about her pre-med major and basically says, you can't become a doctor because you're a woman. And even, even though you're doing great, there are going to be all of these veterans returning and they're going to get first priority into medical schools. And you really ought to think about going into nursing instead. So her, her options are limited by her gender. And I, I think you're, you're right that there is this wide spectrum of how these children get off the island, whether it's purely through being gifted, gifted with talent, but also gifted with financial resources yeah. like Caroline, whether it's through like kind of sheer force of will, like call, and then Sarah Louise is somewhere in between. But they, they all make it out in different ways based on what resources and chances are available to them. You spoke a little bit about the differences between the opportunities for girls and boys. And before we move away from that conversation and, and dive into the captain for a few minutes, because we need to talk about him. Absolutely. I did want to make a note of one line that I pulled out that I thought was really interesting and speaks to this book potentially as like a work of feminism to some extent. Sarah Louise is having a conversation with her mom toward the end of the book because she's like, I need you to explain to me why you're here. Because Sarah Louise and Caroline's dad was born on the island, but their mom, who was educated and sort of like beautiful and had all these amazing things going for her and seems to have been able to go anywhere she wanted, chose to come to the island. Um, And she stayed because she fell in love with their dad. And in like a moment of real frustration, Sarah Louise is, is basically feeling like, why would you do this to yourself? Like, why why would you choose to be here? I just want to leave. You had all of these other options. You had choices. You got to go to school. But why are you here? And I'm sure part of that is because Sarah Louise is like, well, if you hadn't limited yourself, then maybe I wouldn't be so limited. Right. But her mom says, I am what I wanted to be. I chose. No one made me become what I am. And I had stars and exclamation points and everything all yes. over that line. Because I was thinking throughout the book about like, obviously, the gender politics of the whole thing. And, and there's so much history embedded in all of that. But also, I was like, I think that there's a heavy dose of feminism in this book, which I didn't pick up in Bridge to Terabithia. So it feels like maybe Catherine Patterson was like really coming coming out for that in this book. But with that line, I was like, oh, yep, yeah, there it is. Like, yes. you know, Sarah Louise's mom made a choice to like put some of her other dreams aside because she fell in love. And while that might seem frustrating to Sarah Louise, whose choice would have been different, she feels like the fact that she had the opportunity to choose is what was most important. And I think that like, no matter what our conversations around feminism look like, it does always kind of come around to that. Like every choice is valid. What's important is that women have a choice to make. 100%. And I agree. I think there's some kind of sneaky feminism in here. I, I loved that line. And I also loved the part where she's talking about the crabs. She's She's working on a crabbing boat and helping her family. And she's kind of watching seasonally as the crabs change. And she's thinking about the difference between male and female crabs and therefore men and women in general. And she thinks males, I thought, always have a chance to live no matter how short their lives. But females, ordinary, ungifted ones, just get soft and die. And that I had that one pulled out too. Yes. The way she thinks about that is 
sad, but also I think very real for the time the book is set, at least, and and how she is given fewer opportunities because of her gender. And I also think that says a lot about kind of the importance of young adult fiction and middle grade fiction for girls, where you know the end of the the road for girls and all and so many of these books we read is marriage and kids, and therefore kind of the end of their individualism and spunk and adventures. And I love that Katherine Patterson seems to see that in this book and comment on it, even if that's still to a certain extent where Sarah Louise ends up. Yeah. I thought it was fascinating the way that feminism was woven in this book. And I think it's going to continue to give me something to think about as I keep processing this book. So before we start to wind down this conversation, let's talk briefly about Captain Hiram. Um, (laughs) uh, Captain Hiram is a character throughout much of the book. He is this outsider that shows up on the island pretty like near the beginning, I would say. And nobody knows who he is at first. And it turns out that he is this man um, who he left like 50 years ago. He was the first islander that has like been known to leave and get an education and come back. His parents were able to afford that for him and he comes back and like nobody is quite sure why and call and Sarah Louise sort of attached themselves to him. Call forms this very special bond with him because he doesn't have any like adult men in his life and so they kind of pal around a lot. And then this sort of like weird thing happens <laughs> <laughs> where the captain becomes a little bit more intertwined with Sarah Louise and Caroline's family when there's a hurricane and he like needs a place to live and at this point he and Sarah Louise have gotten pretty close because they've been working on these like renovation projects around the island together which is like you know those are like kind of fun summer stories of like kids running around on an island we see that in a lot of kids books which I liked and those are fun again I was like is this what the book is going to be about and then obviously all (laughs) these other things happen but at a certain point the captain moves in with the family because his house has been totally destroyed by the hurricane and Sarah Louise develops some feelings so he's I believe 70 years old yes um, and she is 14 at this point (laughs) and uh I think maybe it was like soon after the hurricane he hugs her and she's like hmm hmm this feels interesting what is that and then later on she says why had I never noticed before how beautiful his hands were I wanted to hold one in both of my hands and kiss the fingertips oh my blessed I was going crazy just looking (laughs) at his hands was doing the same wild things to the secret places of my body that holding him had done um there's a lot there. There's a lot there. And and I would say that, that sort of, I would say that hmm, my first instinct about this whole thing was that Sarah Louise does not seem to be getting a lot of affection and love, or at least the people in her family do not express their love through physical touch. That's not their love right. language. They're not especially expressive, no matter how much they care for each other. And so my first thought was like, is this just the first time somebody's hugged her in a long time? Like, is she just sort of confused about what that's supposed to mean? Or is it because the captain is like one of the first people who she feels really sees her? I mean, he's the first person to actually call her Sarah Louise. Throughout the book, right. everybody else calls her Wheeze. And it means a lot to her that he respects her enough to actually call her by her full name but uh, but then I was also disturbed by the whole thing like it I just I felt very confused it's very confusing I think that your read on it as a little bit more symbolic is 
how I prefer to interpret it. Same. I mean, I think the the piece about him calling her by her real name is so important. We didn't talk much about how it's Caroline who first calls her Wheeze, and then that name sticks and nobody calls her Sarah Louise except the captain. I think that's super important. I think the captain also represents to her somebody who has gotten off the island um, and been successful, which is something that's really important to her. I think it's also important to note that he doesn't reciprocate those feelings or probably even know that she has them. So Very it's not, important. There's nothing there's nothing word as people yes. would say. There's nothing yes. inappropriate going on. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. I mean, this is not a part of the book that I could relate to, but I do think like first sexual feelings or awakenings can be weird and like yeah. weirdly misdirected. And maybe she's just saying something about that, about how we, you know, all of, all of a sudden these things start happening and it's confusing. And I think especially in a super religious community, which is a part of the book that I hadn't remembered at all, in spite of the title coming from the Bible. They're clearly not talking to each other about sex and desire and relationships or anything like that. And so I guess I I still think it's super weird, but I can kind of see a character like Sarah Louise, you know, being a young teenager and all of a sudden having these physical feelings and being completely confused and directing them in a strange way. Yeah, it, it just came out of nowhere. It was the only part of the book that I was like, mm, I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, Catherine yeah. Patterson can really do very little wrong. And I wouldn't even say that this was wrong. It just took me by surprise. Totally. And I, I think that that is why I kind of prefer to read it with the more symbolic take, because often when things come out of left field in a in a book, particularly something that I don't like. And clearly, like, this is not going to please many readers at all. Mm -hmm. Then I have to take that step back and think, well, why would she include this? And I, I think she's including it because she's showing how important his attention to her had been, how important it was that she felt like he saw her in a way that her family didn't see her, his life trajectory being something that she aspired to. I think all of those elements make the whole thing make more sense. Now, could all of those things have been true without the sexual undertones? Yes. <laughs> so, and that's another part of the book I didn't remember. Although when I read the description of the hands that you read, I was like, oh, I remember the books lingering on imagery of hands. There's a lot of hands. Yes. But I did not remember her feelings for the captain. So yeah, that was just an interesting turn. Um, but I agree. I prefer to read it the other way. And I think we'll just <laughs> take it at that yeah, we'll take it from there. I feel like we could talk about this book for a whole other hour. There are two other things that I want to say quickly before we really officially wind down. The first is that, as you mentioned, the title is a reference to a verse in the Bible. Verse? I'm, I'm not very well-versed in the Bible, <laughs> but it refers to the sibling rivalry between Jacob and Esau in Romans 9.13. The line is, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Um, and so that kind of speaks to the relationship, of course, between Sarah Louise and Caroline. So that's Jacob. That's a Jacob that I was looking for throughout much of the book. I think it's really important that it's her grandmother who quotes that Bible verse at her. It's not something that she comes to on her own. It's her grandmother who is 
very spiteful woman quotes that at Sarah Louise to remind Sarah Louise that she is the unfavored or unloved twin like Esau in the Bible. Esau. See, Which, I don't even know how to pronounce it. Is it Esau? I, I think that's right. I, I think so. I don't I'm, know. <laughs> I'm not totally sure. I, I actually have memories of reading that Bible verse because I went to Catholic school okay. in middle school and having like very similar feelings as Sarah Louise does in this book of, well, this is so unfair. Why does God hate this child? I don't understand. So I I don't know. I'm team Sarah Louise on that one. That seems. Oh, for sure. Well, and then she also has that moment where she was like trying to think about who is like speaking in that verse in the Bible. And because she was trying to remember, like, is this another like person in the Bible? Is this another character, another biblical figure? And then she realizes that it's God speaking. And that, of course, like throws her for a whole loop for good reason, because in a very religious community, as you mentioned, where like God's word is all to think that like God would sort of put those words down and be like, yeah, it's possible for me to like love you more than somebody else is very upsetting to her. And she, of course, personalizes that and projects it into her relationship with her sister. The other thing that I want to make sure we touch on is the end of the book, um, which is this kind of full circle moment. As you mentioned uh, earlier, Sarah Louise has gone on to college and she is discouraged from going to med school because of her of her gender and because of all of the men coming back who are going to be applying to medical school. So she decides to train as a midwife instead. And she, much like her mom, actually decides that like going to sort of an isolated community is like the romantic adventure that she's been looking for. And so she finds her way to a little village in the Appalachian Mountains where she's going to be like the only medical resource for people as a nurse midwife. And I will say like the only thing that I found tough about that piece of it was like this book spans such a wide range of ages for Sarah Louise and I think that makes it a tough I think it makes it tough to figure out the target audience in some ways I mean it's so clearly a middle grade book but I do think that like some of the content later on would be very hard for younger middle graders in particular to relate to like I don't know the the watching your sister get married and being the one that has to like shoulder the burdens of caring for your grandparents while your parents are away because they're aging and then going off to this small town on your own and like falling in love with a widower and being (laughs) pregnant and like giving birth and all of these things um, I thought might be trickier for a younger middle grader to take in. I agree. And I also thought that the pacing of the book feels very strange towards the end. I mean, we're so involved and invested in Sarah Louise's interior life when she's growing up as a teenager. And then the last, I don't know, 50 pages seem more like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And I I think maybe Patterson felt like she needed to get Sarah Louise to adulthood to teach the lesson she wanted to teach, but that it does make the end of the book feel much less resonant than the rest of the book. And I agree. I I don't remember how I reacted as, I think I read this book maybe in fourth grade. I don't remember how I felt about the last part of it. It doesn't stand out in my memory. So maybe when I would reread this book, maybe I'd stop at a certain point. I'm not sure. But I agree. I, I think that that doesn't feel like something that a middle grader would be interested in reading or even really fully understand why it's important. 
Yeah, or even be comfortable with. I mean, the yeah. final scene where we see it like a somewhat like graphic situation in which a teen mother is giving birth to twins. Like, I would think that maybe a fourth or fifth grader would be a little bit uncomfortable with some of that or scared. So I thought that was interesting. I did find a lot of reviews in line with what you just said about how it seems like the book ties up really fast at the end and that Katherine Patterson brought Sarah Louise into adulthood just so that we could see that like she'd recognize that she had her power to make decisions on her own all along. And I think that's true, but it did tie up really quickly. Things come full circle in that scene where Sarah Louise is helping this teen mother give birth to twins because the first twin that is born is a boy who is super mm-hmm. healthy and fine. And then the second twin is a girl who, when she's born, is it's. I thought actually that she was dead because the, um, the author describes her as totally cold. And Sarah Louise, as the midwife, takes it upon herself of course to save this baby's life and like immediately takes her to the fire and tries to warm her up and is like giving all of her attention to this second twin who's struggling for her life and then she has this moment where she's like wait but where's the first twin Mm -hmm. um and of course the mother is like primarily concerned for the second twin because that's the the baby that has health issues and it's then that sarah louise is like no like you feed the first twin Mm -hmm. I will feed the second twin because she had had a baby and she could breastfeed the second twin. And again, like these are things from like fourth or fifth grade. I don't know. I don't know how I would have like enjoyed these like breastfeeding anecdotes (laughs) as an elementary schooler or even as a middle schooler. Um, But yeah, she sort of has this opportunity to like redeem her own story by making sure that that first twin who was healthy got some love and attention from that first moment of his birth. She is then able to like nurture the second twin, which I felt was in some way like a bit of retribution for all of the hatred that she'd had for her younger sister her whole life and it was like a pretty nice beautiful package at the end I mean some readers don't like that some do I'm kind of ambivalent about it it was like very symbolic and nice and uh, I feel like hopefully Sarah Louise will have some of her issues dealt with a little bit more after that experience yeah I agree I I think it's it's nice that in the end she as she's trying to save the second twin, she does kind of realize, okay, some some people need more. Like in this moment, this baby needs more than the other. But she still kind of tries to correct the course of her own life by making sure that the first baby is getting attention as well. And so she's both acknowledging that the pain that she went through was real and trying to make sure it doesn't happen in this moment to the infant that was healthy, but also understanding the plight that her parents were in as she tries to save this sick infant. Yeah, it was nice. Sarah Louise ends up pretty happy. She is married. She has a baby. She's working. Uh, She's gotten away from the island. She seems to have done okay, but no contact with her sister, as we mentioned early on. Yeah, and I, I think it's nice that she kind of comes into her role as somebody who does like to do good for others, and yet she's doing it this time of her own volition. She's making the choice to be of service to this community rather than feeling like it's a necessity. Yeah, I I agree. I think the ending was nice and fine, but not the part of the book that really hits the like emotional punch that some of the other moments do. Yeah, I didn't need it, but it was fine. Um, on the whole, Sarah, how did this experience of coming back to Jacob Have I Loved compare to your memories of reading as a kid? Do you think it's held up or has it disappointed you in some way? It definitely held up for me. I'm so grateful to have the experience of getting to come back for it, to read it, 
and getting a chance to chat about it rather than just thinking about it on my own at home. But I thought the story is really beautiful. It stands out as very different from other middle grade books because of Sarah Louise's character, because she's not the plucky heroine that so many other books feature. I love that. I think it has a great depiction of relationships and good lessons without feeling like it's trying to force a moral agenda on the reader. Yeah, I I thought it held up. I loved it. I'm so glad. So I, as we talked about, I didn't read it as a kid, but I will say that just the language and the writing and a lot of the elements of it brought me back to a lot of other similar books that I read as a kid. So there's a nice dose of nostalgia, even with the writing and the style for somebody who never read this book and did not know who Jacob was until (laughs) I learned that it was from the Bible. So other than Jacob Have I Loved, I know that you always have a very long list of books that you're reading, books that you've loved, but I'd love if you would share a few that you might recommend to our listeners. Yeah. Well, as I was reading this, I was thinking about other books with sort of unlikable but relatable narrators that I love. So definitely The Interestings by Meg Wolitzer comes to mind as an amazing book with that kind of element. I loved My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Otessa Moshveg, same sort of deeply unlikable character who you just root for and empathize with. Those are two I'd recommend if you feel similarly about what kind of characters you like. Otherwise, recently I read Girl, Woman, Other by Bernardine Evaristo, and it was phenomenal. Probably one of the best books I've read in years. Highly recommend that. Well, I will include links to all three of those books in the show notes for this episode. The Interestings is one of my all-time faves. Um, I recommend it to everyone. And my year of rest and relaxation is actually on my TBR for the next like two weeks. So by the time this episode drops, I will hopefully have something to say about it. Um, I also will, of course, include a link to Jacob Have I Loved in the show notes for this episode for those who want to check it out and a link to Sarah's blog, Fiction Matters. Go check it out if you haven't. Sarah, I also have to tell you that you have the most love lovely voice for reading like when you were reading (laughs) excerpts from the book I was like oh I feel it's like teacher voice I was like I used to love being read to as a kid because there is that very special teacher voice and you have it so I I didn't know when the appropriate time to tell you that was (laughs) but it's true I love reading aloud to my students and I tell them at the beginning of every year I'm like this is just something you have to indulge me in because I love it and I think they like it too. So. I'm I like I miss those days and you have an excellent teacher voice. So thank you for sharing it with all of us. Thank you for reading this book. Thanks for being part of the show. I've really enjoyed talking with you and I kind of feel like you and I could talk for like four more hours. I completely agree. I, I there's so much more I want to say about this book, but maybe we'll do that offline <laughs> some other time. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hello at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.